all kinds of people can have personality cults and charisma. Influencers, movie stars, and democratic politicians like JFK or at the beginning Macron. But here's the difference. The charisma of all these people I've mentioned is they have something special, je ne sais quoi, but they make you feel like you could be their friend. They draw you to them. But that's where it stops. Authoritarian has all of that, but also, and this is crucial, he makes it clear that he's going to dominate you and that he is going to make you do his bidding. So it's not a passive charisma where you're just drawn to them and you can't get enough of them. They are doing things to you. And that's where the cult comes in. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. Since we launched the podcast last year, we've talked frequently about the rise of authoritarianism in the United States and around the globe. And today, I wanted to think about how autocratic leaders have risen to and maintained power in the last century to see what we can learn and how we can use this information to fight back against a new wave of anti-liberal leaders. That's why I'm excited to speak to Ruth Ben-Ghiat. Ruth is a professor of history and Italian studies at New York University, and she's the author of The Lucid Newsletter. She's a recipient of the Guggenheim Memorial Fellowship, a member of the Institute for Advanced Study, and a Fulbright Research Fellow. She's also an expert on fascism, authoritarianism, war, propaganda, and Donald Trump, and the author of the number one Amazon bestseller, Strong Men, Mussolini to the Present, which examines how illiberal leaders use corruption, violence, propaganda, and machismo to stay in power, and how resistance to them has unfolded over the last century. Ruth, I'm so looking forward to this conversation and grateful to you for making the time. Yeah, I'm glad to be speaking with you. Why don't we start with a little bit of background on the book and what made you decide to write it when you did? What were you seeing in the U.S. and around the world that compelled you to, to write this piece? Really two things. Uh, one is that I saw, I'm a historian by training, and I saw that history was kind of under attack and there was a lot of revisionism going on. Everything from Putin banning mention of the Nazi Soviet pact to, um, you know, what's, what's going on with talking about, you know, slavery in the United States to the Proud Boys and the global right who go around with t-shirts that say Pinochet did nothing wrong, referring to the Chilean dictators. So there's this attempt to kind of whitewash the abuses of history. And I thought it was time to set the record straight. And the other, you know, prompt is <laughs> I live in America. So seeing Donald Trump come on the scene. And immediately, um, you know, with the, the, the rallies and the loyalty oaths, and I saw that, I saw very clearly from my studies on fascism what he was doing. So I uh, was already writing for CNN on historical things, and I started writing about Trump in 2015. <laughs> and by 2017, when he was inaugurated, I'd already kind of predicted what he would do in terms of personality cult dynamics. And I'd already uh, written a piece for The Atlantic in 2016, uh, predicting how the GOP would behave, how they would fall in line, because that's part of the cult dynamics. There's the leader, and then there's the elite followers, and there's the grassroots. So those are the, the two things, one American and one global. And, and I, it, it's the first book to put Trump uh, and his enablers in the 
uh, context of a century of authoritarian history. And so some that some people think, well, Trump has no business, you know, being there. It's not going to happen here. It has no nothing to do with it. But I show through, um, you know, analyses of corruption and leadership style and propaganda that he he's very much in this tradition. You know, one of the things that comes up when we're talking about Trump in this context is that he's sort of an idiot and that he's sort of, you know, many people like to think of him as sort of an accidental president. He bumbled into the presidency. And I wonder how you address that and and that the the role of sort of sophistication of these leaders and how Donald Trump contrasts to that. So, yes, it can seem like he, I mean, he didn't think he was going to win. Right. And he, in that sense, he bumbled in, but he had wanted to be president for a long time. And he had entertained going into politics for a very long time. And then he and his advisors, Bannon among them, figured out the, the best time, which was uh, eight year, after eight years of an African-American president and when authoritarianism was on the uptick. So there's nothing casual about that. The other thing about Trump is he is crazy like a fox. He has the same, unfortunately for us, and I didn't expect to find this. I did not go into writing this book thinking that Trump would line up so thoroughly. His personality and his leadership style and his instincts are unfortunately exactly the same as almost all of the authoritarians are studied. And so there isn't a printed manual that they read and he doesn't read. We know that, right? But I also believe Ivana, his first wife, she said he had two books in his bedroom and one was, of course, his own Art of the Deal and the other was Hitler's speeches. Because the thing about Trump is that uh, and this could sound crazy, but I truly believe it. I'm an expert on propaganda. He is one of the most skilled propagandists of our times. And he invests a huge amount of effort and time into being a propagandist. And he's very, very successful. We'll get to this, I think, later in the conversation. But we recently discussed the Alabama rally uh, and uh, in the context of propaganda. And so I want to return to that later on because. In some, it's not over. You highlight uh, the use of corruption and violence and propaganda and machismo as the tools that strongmen use to stay in power. What are the warning signs of them as they come to power? And what are the things that we should be looking for as we evaluate candidates who are running for office? Yeah, that's a great question. And what happens is it's it's a it's a fateful meeting of circumstance and personality. And so the, uh, like part of the book is finding patterns over a hundred years. And one of them is that a societies, the societies that uh, appeal, you know, that, that have an appeal for strong men and vice versa is uh, they're societies that have gone through a, a lot of change, often a lot of social and political emancipation progress. It could be, you know, female emancipation, uh, it could be racial equity, uh, workers' rights. And we had all of that under eight years of Obama with legalization of same-sex marriage. All of these things uh, 
that were a perfect storm for conservatives and the far right. So you have those circumstances. It could be secularization, all of those things going on. And then uh, those that's when it's propitious for um, a certain kind of leader who most of them have a background in mass communications, uh, like Berlusconi owned TVs, but Mobutu in the Congo was a journalist. Trump was a marketer and had reality TV. And they know how to perform. And so they have the right kind of personality. They have this charisma. They know how to cultivate people, radicalize people. They can be all things to all people because they're amoral. So they, they that's why what's one interesting thing, and Trump fits in, these guys have um, the most uh, eclectic group of backers. They have gangsters. They have um, religious figures. And they have housewives. They have they're misogynists, but they're women. So one of the war- the warning signs are that you have these charismatic figures who promise to be saviors of the nation. The other thing is that they um, immediately, if they're running for, if it's not a coup, if they're running for office, they start talking about violence or they they practice violence, and they tell you very clearly that they are going to be violent. And so when Trump um, this is emblazoned on my brain, and I ran home to do a CNN op-ed. I remember where I was. And he said, uh, I could stand on Fifth Avenue and shoot someone, and I wouldn't lose any followers. And as a historian of fascism, I totally freaked out at this, because it was all very clear. He wasn't only saying to Americans that he was going to be violent, and, but he was saying that he was above the law. And that he would lead these people to think that violence was good. So he was saying all of that in January. So that's another sign. And Duterte did that. He told Filipinos, oh, don't vote for me because if I win, it's going to be bloody. Like he actually said that. So when you think these people come along and, and Bolsonaro talked about, you know, like he, he with anti-gay statements and all kinds of violent statements. So you think, well, who in their right mind would speak this way? That's not how you attract voters, but <laughs> they're not, they're not uh, uh, normal candidates. They're not, they're not interested in democracy. So, so these are some of the personality traits, the savior, the violence, uh, immediately going after the press, that all of them do. And so if you have a book like mine that goes over 100 years, you see that this happens over and over again, and we keep falling for it. I want to tease apart a couple of the, the the signs, the traits, because to start with charisma, I mean, you could argue that that's just part of being a good politician in a democracy. And so where do you start to see the, the line forming between what it takes to be a successful candidate in a 21st century hyper-connected democracy and the warning signs of an illiberal leader on the rise? Yeah, that's it's it's an important distinction because all kinds of people can have personality cults and charisma. Yeah, um, look at Instagram. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly, influencers, uh, movie stars, and democratic politicians like JFK or at the beginning Macron um, in France. But here's the difference: the charisma of all these people I've mentioned is 
they have something special, je ne sais quoi, but you, you want to, they make you feel like you could be their friend. They draw you to them, but that's where it stops. The authoritarian um, has all of that, but also, and this is crucial, he makes it clear that he's going to dominate you and that he is going to make you do his bidding and that the price of, uh, so it's not a passive charisma where you're just drawn to them and you can't get enough of them. They are doing things to you. And that's where the cult stuff comes in. They want to make you act against your own interests. For example, attending rallies in the middle of a pandemic with no mask on, right? Um, or giving up your life savings to them because they're crooks. So the, the making them do the bidding and, and having this power, they used to say in the 30s of like magnetizing, like Hitler would put people under a spell. So, so film stars or Instagram influencers are not really trying to make you separate from your family or turn your family in. So that's the difference. So we've talked about on the podcast, American exceptionalism before. Uh, my first conversation about this was with Ann Applebaum uh, about her book, Twilight of Democracy, and how this phenomenon has sort of pulled the wool over our eyes to some extent. It's made a lot of us think that the move to authoritarianism can't happen here, that it, that it wouldn't happen even when we were in the throes of Donald Trump. And I want to talk about that, but, but first... Um, you know, in his, in his famous book, The Black Swan, uh, Nassim Taleb mentions an important piece of writing uh, that sent him on the path of thinking and writing about the black swan. And for listeners, if you're not familiar with this concept, it's the black swan is a, a disproportionate role of seismic, uh, unpredicted events in history um, and science and finance and technology and the biases that blind us uh, both individually and collectively from recognizing how big their role is going to be in history, which we tend to rationalize later. And this, this, the writing he mentions is of the journalist William Shirer and his Berlin diary, which is a firsthand eyewitness account of the events that gave rise to the third Reich. And what Taleb mentions was a light bulb moment for him in this day-to-day account that he read is that there isn't even a hint that the Germans recognized where the events they were experiencing were about to take them. And so I wonder what you think about that and how it connects to American exceptionalism and how American exceptionalism has, has shaped the rise of American authoritarianism. This was something very sad to write about in the book because I, I have testimonies and case studies of people who didn't see it coming. And, and then after it happened in Italy for the first time, because Hitler learned from Mussolini, although sometimes people like to think it's the other way around. Because Mussolini, he started fascism in 1919, and by 1922, he was already prime minister, like, boom. And Hitler, you know, took him a whole a whole uh, decade, and that's why he moved so fast. And a failed coup attempt. <laughs> and a failed coup. So people who had lived through Mussolini were trying to warn the Germans. And so, for example... Uh, a huge mistake was that the opposition wouldn't unite. And the communists were just so rigid, they were seeing the social democrats as fascists almost. So that so some people were trying to tell them, like, no, this isn't going to work. But, you know, over and over again, we see these blind spots. And part of that, the syndrome is, 
not taking seriously the strongman. So Hitler was dismissed as like a crazy ranter, or you know, they was ridiculed as a waiter, not only by Chaplin, but early, early on, people were joking that he was like the classic Austrian waiter, you know. And Mussolini too, because he gesticulated, all of this happens. And we saw the same with Trump. Like, could he, you know, he's just crazy or he's just an entertainer. And and part of this, I I believe it's partly denial because people uh, are too scared. If you take it seriously that uh, these people are so dangerous, because Trump is connected to several mafias. He's a highly dangerous person. And people are still uh, not quite grappling with how dangerous he is because it's too scary to think. So it's easier to think that it can't happen here. But what the, the case that most impressed slash depressed me <laughs> was Chile. So they had a coup in Chile. So you could say, okay, they couldn't really prepare because they had a coup and, you know, the opposition, like in the coup, you, you leave in the morning to go to work and you're in a democracy, you come back, it's, if you come back at all, it's not. But what happened was the Christian Democrats, who were like the conservatives in Germany, they actually thought that Pinochet would, they backed the coup after it happened, because they actually thought that Pinochet would restore order, and then he'd give them back power and return Chile to democracy. So that even when something awful happens, there's this denial, and we've seen this in our country. There are people who like are still not getting what January 6th was or what the entire four years of Trumpism is, was, is. And I, I personally would, uh, you know, as somebody who was very, very early, um, I had, you know, more than my share. CNN was like, I was already writing for them, and they published amazing things by me, meaning amazing, like, that they published them, like, I had a piece February 1st, 2017, that was called Trump and Bannon's Coup in the Making. And it laid out exactly what's happening. And they published that. But I had a piece in January 2016, really early, that predicted that Trump would have a personality cult if he got the nomination, and no one would publish it. So I opened a blog at HuffPost where you could just do it. That's what I had to do. Because it seemed so far-fetched. People were like, this is crazy. No. So I've both seen it as a historian. And I've also lived through it as someone writing. Um, Mm. And it's highly frustrating and sad, really. Does it seem to you like the January 6th attack um, made the stakes higher for enough people? Or do you one of the frustrations that I feel personally all the time is that the significance of that moment just seems to be lost on too many people. And, you know, we've talked about it on the podcast before from, you know, from a, from a communications perspective and a, and a messaging strategy perspective for Democrats, because there seem to be so many people in the country who are just um, inclined to forget about it or to, um, you know, to, to put it in the past and just move on. How do you think about that event and the way it's been, um, perceived by most Americans? I agree with you. I truly think that, I mean, January 6th was a a radicalizing event and it's 
uh, now being predictably uh, turned into the foundational event for the new fascist state with martyrs, with now the recent rally taking a loyalty oath and, and, and it's the foundational movement of the new mythology. Uh, It's, it's so important to them, but it was almost like a cognitive dissonance for many Americans because, you know, January 6th was a huge problem in theory for the Republicans who are all about police, all about police bashing the heads of non-white people, all about law and order. And then there were very disturbing video that was everywhere of uh, these people um, trying to save leader Trump, trying to crush the skull of uh, Capitol Police beating up Capitol Police, trying to get to lawmakers, and you saw them rushing to even Pence, who was, you know, number two. And and I think that um, quite apart from them perhaps falling or wanting to believe the propaganda of Tucker Carlson and the whole very effective messaging machine that was, you know, unleashed, it's like they they just didn't want to believe it because it was so extreme. And so when things like that happen, it's easier to put it into a little container and say, yeah, well, was it really that bad? Because in order to, if it is that bad, not only you have to get rid of Trump, but the entire party that now is his, 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 his he's domesticated the whole party. And so on, when they did not get rid, you know, the, the, the other, the last thing I'd say about it is on January 7th, <laughs> The GOP made a fateful choice. Now, not not surprising, given who they become, what they'd become. But they could have easily discarded Trump as a toxic substance and decided, even, it's not like they're going to become centrist again, but they could have turned back a little from um, this, this violence. And they doubled down. And in that sense, it's a radicalizing event. It's a training exercise. It's all of the things that have been discussed on, you know, and, and Lincoln and Lincoln Project and everywhere. Um, so I think it was too much for some Americans to want to deal with because that means that they would have to forego the whole Republican Party. And, and we have a two-party system. And this is a huge liability that we have a two-party system because there's nowhere for them to go. You know, this uh, this reminds me of a conversation we just had yesterday about the shifting constituencies between the two parties and how, you know, just as an example, the Republican Party used to be the pro-business party, and now it seems they're not pro-business anymore in a lot of ways. And instead, they have a different allegiance to essentially the mob, their, their, their base of donors. And, and I wonder how you think about that, um, not necessarily in terms of, you know, political strategy for the Democrats, but, but what does it mean when the Republican party, one of our only two parties now is no longer a credible governing partner and, uh, and, and is sort of bound by um, a populist donor base. They they're, they pledge allegiance to the to the source of money, really. Uh, that doesn't believe the election was legitimate, 
and um, and and sort of forces forces the standard bearers of the party into um, an alternate reality and communicating an alternate mm-hmm. reality persistently. How do you think about that? Again, it's if you have a bipartisan system and one of the two parties is truly now a far right authoritarian party with an authoritarian political culture. That's what it is. And Trump really uh, brilliantly subjected the party to a truly authoritarian discipline. So the party discipline, it, yes, it's not the same as Stalin, what Stalin did. It's not the same you know, as Mobutu and the consequences are not those of Saddam Hussein, but some of the dynamics are the same. He, he completely extinguished internal dissent within the party so that uh, pe- people like Representative Peter Meyer, who voted to uh, impeach uh, Trump the second time, had to go you know, get security and buy body armor because he was getting death threats. These are authoritarian dynamics. So when you have that, um, there's, no, there, there's very few defectors. So, you know, the whole thing about having a third party is very difficult in the States. But other places where these far-right populists have been neutralized, like in Italy, they, they pretty much banded together to, um, you know, to neutralize Matteo Salvini, who's really dangerous and is a client of Putin and Orban. He, he's very dangerous. And in Czechoslovakia, we just had, they, they were able, because they're coalition governments. So we can't do that. So our bipartisan, and we see that in the day-to-day governing now, there is no bipartisanism. And one of the problems is that, uh, and it trickles down to the media, is that some of the Democratic, I mean, Biden ran as, as a unifier. He said, I'm going to be the president of all, all Americans, because Trump, that was another thing people didn't get until it was too late, that Trump had zero interest in being the president of all Americans. He, he's only going to be the president of people who he could, you know, siphon money out of, right, and, 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 and get allegiance. So this is a conundrum. It's a, it's a huge dilemma. It's like a structural problem we have. Yeah, I was going to say this. This sounds like a pitch for something I've thought about for a long time, which is how America can potentially move to a multi-party democracy uh, system, and that's yeah. a larger conversation for another time. But um, but, yeah. but 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 I I, I agree. Um, I want to switch gears a little bit. Um, a couple of weeks ago, we had Tom Nichols on, and we talked about this paradox. Uh, that there's a perception that we're living in the worst of times, that everything is terrible, but the standard of living is actually higher now than it has ever have and than it ever has been. How has that tension impacted this new wave of illiberalism that you see? Yeah. So what it's meant, I mean, we we have we're really in this what's going on in the US is almost like a microcosm of these larger things because just as we got Trumpism and all the things we know that were terrible, we have this march toward authoritarianism of the GOP we've been talking about. We also had the largest social mobilization in history with Black Lives Matter protests. And, uh, and if you look around the world, it's very interesting. 2019, was there was the most protest in the world than ever before. 
in Chile, there were protests of inequality in France, all over the place. There were these huge protests, um, Belarus, uh, Russia. So there's a whole new generations that are anti-authoritarianism and, and, and pro, you know, pro nonviolent protest and they're growing and yet authoritarians are, are clamping down and these things are in relation. That's why I, what I try and do, and, and by the way, the book came out in paperback uh, uh, this month, and it has a new epilogue, which kind of continues through January 6th, but this dynamic has only increased. And so we, to, to situate, you know, the United States is the, is the newest frontier of this, these uh, opposing um, tendencies, which are clashing, and we're fighting it out now. Yeah. And in that epilogue, you note that as of early 2021, more than half the world's population lives under some form of, of illiberal rule. Do you want to talk a bit about how the pandemic has accelerated uh, democratic decline over the last 18 months? The pandemic has been difficult for progressives all over the world. Um, Partly from the top down, where it's necessitated uh, more government intervention, um, and in places like Turkey and Hungary and Russia, they the leaders, which are already autocrats, have definitely used it to consolidate power. And so Orban, Mark, you know, nakedly used it. He now rules by decree. And uh, so they will take advantage. So autocrats take advantage of any kind of um, situation that develops. Often they stage their own crises. <laughs> but in this case, the crisis came. And um, so, so that's going on. But in other ways, too, the pandemic uh, increased uh, suspicion at that let's say at the grassroots level the societal level it increased a lot of the impulses that lead us to um, go for us versus them mentalities that you're suspicious of others you're fearful of others and in turkey and in brazil and many many places around the world you also had a wave of anti-semitism uh, that is still continuing and and it was uh, partly catalyzed by covid so you have and it's and some places it's jews plus others but the idea of the foreigner uh who comes in and spreads disease right my own mother who lives in england has become she, she became radicalized during the lockdown by watching rt which she doesn't somehow think is kremlin propaganda and so she started saying things like the only people who are bringing COVID into the country are Asians. And, and so, so the coronavirus both, so it's both from top down, uh, you know, people who exploit it to have repressive policies. And then also lockdowns meant people were watching more TV or uh, they were not socializing. And we know that socializing and for example, my mother's in a small village. She socializes with people who don't have her political views. And she wasn't, she was a conservative. She wasn't like this before. So that's just a little case study. It happens to be in my own family. But how many people do we know who, had, over the pandemic, have uh, seen an acceleration of friends or family members into 
uh, into the tunnel of disinformation and then they can hardly talk to them. Yeah, I have some in my own family. And it's, yeah. it's painful. It is. Yeah. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. And make sure you're subscribed so you get notified when the second part of this conversation drops next week. Podcasts tend to grow based on word of mouth. So if you want to help more people discover politicology, you can share this episode or one of your favorites with your friend group, your family, or your colleagues. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we'd love to hear from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.